Hi, you're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. On this podcast, we discuss our relationship with food, whether it is easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. I suffered with eating disorders for years, and it took everything to pull through. Now that I'm at the other side, I want to open up the conversation, find out how other people manage this basic and most fundamental of relationships. I'm taking a light approach, but I think if this area of our lives is skewed, then so is the rest. It's never just about food. Welcome back to season two of this Food Thing podcast. Today I have with me Robin Harford. Robin is a plant-based forager and ethnobotanical researcher. His wild food foraging courses were recently voted number one in the country by BBC Country File. He's an author, a podcaster and wild food educator. Robin's website, eatweeds.co.uk, is listed in the Times Top 50 for food and drink websites. In fact, I can't imagine there's anything he doesn't know about wild plants and their use for food and medicine. Robin, welcome to this Food Thing podcast. Thanks for having me, Gemma. My pleasure. So, how did your relationship with plants begin? Oh, well, grew up in the countryside, Mm -hmm. always been a country kid spent most of my teenage years in the countryside so plants really and nature have always been around i um i grew up with around certain horrible adults so in order to find sanctuary i would just basically whenever i could get away just go into the woods and just muck around wow and explore and at school we kind of go off and eat sweet chestnuts and pick wild garlic and brambles and you know just stuff that we knew eat the odd sorrel leaf and and back then the word foraging didn't exist well it did in anthropological circles but not Mm. in the mainstream like it is now and so we just did what country kids do and what country people have done for well forever basically was it instinctive uh what do you mean as in you kind of knew what the plants were for and you had a, uh, did it feel familiar? Because I didn't go into a wood and pick wild garlic and eat it, even though I, I lived in the I countryside. I don't even know. I mean, the, the memory I've, I'm thinking when I'm saying that is I'm I'm definitely under the age of 13. Wow, that's quite incredible. So, and I don't, I think I would most probably have picked it up from the other kids who knew okay. what they were doing. Okay. Because there was no adult that taught me, certainly not my family. The last thing they were interested wow. in was the wild. Um, so, yeah, but I did I did actually, I used to be sent down because I was a troublesome child. I would mm-hmm. be sent down to my great aunt's two spinsters who lived in Paynton in <laughs> South Devon. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> and they were, yeah, I mean, generational Devonian. Yeah, people. I'm from Devon. I get it. So that kind of, um, they, they would definitely, I remember great aunt Joan would take me on to Dartmoor and she'd have a bucket for the horse crap. Okay. And we'd go and pick bilberries and things like that. And then my great aunt Doris, she would take me down to the, the beach to rock pool and we'd get prawns and just play around really. So it, it was just around. It's what people did back in those days. I'm 57. So that would have been Okay. Kind of yeah. in the seventies. I love the sound of Doris and Joan living in Paynton um, yeah. with their buckets and going on to Dartmoor. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, would you? I wish they'd been my aunts. Um, would you say that 
because the question that I ask and the premise of the podcast is really, would you say that food is friend or foe for you? Definitely friend. Always? Um, good question. I was a raw food vegan. Right. Um, would I say, and I went biafran as a result. What's I mean, biafran? Biafran. So biafra was where... Um, it, there was a lot of famine and starvation. So biafran is like uh, anorexic, basically. Ah, uh, oh, so, when was that? Thin. So I was raw food vegan from 1986 to 1990 and right. used to write on it and teach it. Okay. Um, back then, I mean, you could hardly get a blooming avocado. Yeah, that must have been impossible. Any of the funky stuff that you have now. Why did you become a raw food vegan? Uh, okay, so for people who don't, obviously, most people aren't going to know who I am. But uh, my backstory is that I, I was a very, very good drug and alcohol addict. But okay. I've had different phases of that right. um, through my life. So up until I became a raw food vegan, 1985, I stopped taking drugs right. um, and drinking. And mm -hmm. I disappeared to India, which is kind of ironic. I went to India, got <laughs> off drugs and put on weight. <laughs> <laughs> That's annoying, isn't it? <laughs> which is kind of the reverse of what everyone else does. But hey, story yeah, of my it life. Is. You should have got opposite. yourself something like amoebic dysentery or something like all my, all my friends got. <laughs> yeah. But when we came back, then I got into the raw food diet. And so, but what I, looking back now, what I know is that raw food gets you high yeah it does so fasting gets you high yeah so i was i just uh replaced very unhealthy ways of getting high with supposedly a healthy way to get high and it was healthy you know yeah. the raw food diet vegan diet was really healthy in the early days yeah because i was detoxing from all the i put into my body and mm -hmm. mind but over time it became detrimental I mean, it really trashed my energy levels, just yeah. collapsed. I protein starved myself. You know, raw foodies and vegans now, they're, they're spoiled rotten compared to what we were like in the 80s. I mean, literally, a raw food salad was white cabbage, tomatoes and cucumber with, with, with um, well, early days of raw food. I wasn't vegan, but cottage cheese or yogurt. And then it yeah. just turned to just, you know, when I came oil to dressings. I, sure. I came to London in the 80s and I was vegetarian, vegan, and pretty much all you could get was rose hip tea, textured vegetable protein, and some kind of dodgy plant milk. That was it, really. Yeah, it was. Plow milk. Do you remember plow milk? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do. <laughs> and really bad chocolate. Yeah, so, awful. Um, that's very interesting about the raw food veganism. Um because it trashes your your kidney energy, doesn't it? I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not okay. So one thing we need to be clear is I'm not a mechanic, all right. <laughs> so by the by, there seem to be different character structures in our culture. So yeah, when I what I mean by I'm not a mechanic is I want to know how to turn a light switch on. 
right? Okay. Show yeah. me how to turn the light switch on and I'll be quite happy. <laughs> if you start talking to me about how the wires go back to a, <laughs> through the streets to the generator and there's this big generator and they give me all the signs, I am tuning out on you. All right, we're going to move um, on then. So kidney, don't know. <laughs> well, that would make you feel really exhausted, which is what you said. You must have right. had extreme fatigue. Is that what you're oh, alluding to? absolutely collapsed energy by the afternoon. Okay. I was a care worker, so I was doing late late shifts, so not right, night shifts, right. but I would go into work about four or five, and then I'd clock off about 11, 12. And wow. Yeah, I'd have to sleep for two hours in the afternoon just to be able to get out of, get up and walk. Wow. So, uh, do you know, I've, that happened to a couple of friends of mine as well. So what what um, what got you out of that place? What, what happened? Um, actually, I was talking to a colleague yesterday about it. What did break me out of it? There was a pagan called Starhawk. She's still around, actually. Yeah. She's American, and she's she was a real kick-ass kind of anarcho-pagan feminist. Right. And I ended up being her gopher, <laughs> meaning that I basically yeah. was a bag carrier <laughs> while she was over here. I, I was working in a kind of, oh, God, do I have to? I'll, I'll admit it. it a, new, a new age centre. It was one of the, the biggest new age centres at the time. When, oh, I love those When places. new age was like a, it all become super, yeah. a supermarket. So, again, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And um, and the business, the company I worked for, put, put a number of um, trainers on, mm-hmm. teachers on, and Starhawk happened to be one of them. And she was great. Um, okay. And we did these crazy rituals in London in this hall yeah. where because she was an anarchist and I'm an anarchist, um, <laughs> you know, some of us were, were being naughty and invoking the spirit of Bakunin and Kropotkin and Proudhon, <laughs> all these real old Victorian kind of really wayward anarchists. And, and then we'd go out into the park screaming and dancing. And, you know, this is long before five rhythms ever came about. Yeah, sure, and, sure. Uh, and scared the bejesus out the Londoners. Um, <laughs> it was it was fun. But from that workshop, I went out for the evening with some friends and I just hit a duck breast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted blood. Wow. Um, and I, it crippled my stomach the next day. I mean, it was like so painful because my body had not had i mean duck is intense protein it's rich isn't it yeah so obviously my gut was really rebelling and acclimatizing to it but we got through it so that was your point you ate a duck breast and then were you really really hungry then for a few months um i can't really remember that actually okay oh no can't remember but you so from a, a point of not having anything and alluding to kind of an anorexic state maybe with different intentions you suddenly started to eat again yeah and to develop your palate because it is restricted isn't it raw yeah. food's restrictive totally um raw food vegan is even more restrictive yeah um and when did when did your relationship with with the plants then begin because that was the pre the precursor wasn't it yeah so i suddenly found myself um i was uh for whatever reasons the the business had been badly managed by the owners and it it kind of went they had to cut back so i suddenly found myself out of work and okay. i ended up i basically in this particular business i 
manage the bookshop side. So if you, if anyone knows Watkins Books, yeah. Cecil Court in London. Spent well, many, many an hour in Watkins Books. Right. So I created the Bath version of Watkins Books oh. and people came out of London to come to it because Fantastic. they felt that the range that I had created was, was more... Um, broad than what Watkins had I'm not knocking Watkins I love Watkins sure yeah it's great yeah and um so I did that and then I got made redundant and I ended up ending up putting in data at Waterstone's mail order department Mm -hmm. which was at the back of the bookshop of in Milsom Street in Bath Mm -hmm. and it was three pound fifty an hour wow and and I just was like I swore that I just did not want to be part of this work corporate system yeah however much I love books and because I was obviously everyone who at Waterstones at that time was just total nerds on books yeah great and I did a mail order correspondence course on on mail order on direct mail on publishing self-publishing information products and the end project product was um a book that I created called The Underground Directory, which was all about privacy and counter-surveillance, kind of wannabe James Bond stuff. And it was all really fun Mm -hmm. at the time. Later on, it became really serious and got me in deep hot water with the the, uh, American government. Uh, uh, Um, And so I left. It went so, it it did so well. I was selling out the back of magazines, off the page ads, classified ads in like Exchange and Mark when we used okay. to have it and yeah, Viz yeah. and FHM and all these kind of men's lifestyle mags. Yeah. Um, and that journey, then the internet came on and 1998, I got on the internet. By 2000, I'd shifted my entire publishing company to be digital. So in mm-hmm. 2000, I was selling eBooks, but the, because the internet was the wild west, yeah, um, I I basically was getting more and more stressed and strung out. I'd never dealt with my addiction and why I was using substances in the past, but now, whenever not now, obviously, because I've been mm. clean for seven years, mm. but my way of handling stress was to take intoxicants. And as the business got more stressful with it, with the wild west of the internet. And basically having to watch your back every step of the way because everything yeah. was like Wild West, predators, yeah, yeah, thieves, sure. scoundrels, scallywags. Um, I kind of broke really. 911 clinched it because suddenly the world that I was in, which was publishing all this, what is deemed underground books, was all fun, suddenly mm-hmm. became not fun. And suddenly I had government goons making very heavy threats to me demanding I turn up in America because I protected my privacy. I wrote about privacy, so I, I was practicing what I was preaching. Yeah. And they didn't realize that I was actually in the UK. And what I was doing in the UK was perfectly legal. I mean, I vetted it through government departments just to make sure that I wasn't completely um, stepping over the line. And when I got all these threats from these government thugs, uh, I just hit the booze and the drugs again for a okay. second round and um that was it and then 2004 i just walked away and my timeline says a well 2004 right. 2008 i just went a well i was still using um but in order to deal with my my hypervigilance my my kind of cortisol levels and my high stress i would take the dog out and 
because of the internet, I'd been working like 12, 14 hour days for five years solid. I mean, it was crazy. Totally burnt and out. And I, um, I didn't have any activities. I remember Facebook came on stream and I went to my profile and it said, what, what are your hobbies? And it was like, well, making money. That was it, uh, mm. you know, and I was ruthless as well. Um, and a thug. No, I was not. I was one of those nasty people that would do anything to get cash out of you. Wow. Uh, and of course it wrecked my soul. Of course. <laughs> destroyed yeah. me. Um so I just gave up. I walked away and walked my dog and thought, well, I need a hobby, because <laughs> doing what I've been doing is killing me. And I just started pulling plants out of the lanes and out of the hedges. And I walked over the hill to the library, local library in Sidmouth, and got all the wildflower identification books. And I'd spend hours in my living room just with this plant going, no idea what this is, and just wow. going through page by page. Wow. And it was a very peaceful um, process. It was very self-soothing to my hyper-anxious state. And why would you want to stop that? So why I just carried you? on yeah. doing it. I never had any intention to teach. And then 2008, I kind of – I was still using um, – but I just started blogging. I just thought, well, sod it. Let's just start putting a diary up, bloggings around, put it out into the public domain. And I did it purely just to put it out there so other people who might have an interest. That's amazing. We're going to take a quick break and come back. Okay. You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Robin Harford. And we were just talking about Robin sitting in his front room with a plant after a particularly traumatic few years. And my question being, how were wild plants part of his recovery? So pick it up from there, Robin, go for it. So the recovery part came in um, 2013. Mm -hmm. So I had been wandering. I basically was homeless. My wife had divorced me. My kids didn't want to hear, hear from, or my child rather, not kids. I've got more than one. Um, didn't want to touch me because I was just completely just bonkers. Mm -hmm. um, couldn't see my grandkids, my, even, some, even my closest friends. Right. Most of them just said, you know what, I would love done. you, Rob, yeah. but we can't handle you. You just, you know, come back, sort yourself out. Other friends who were very beautiful um, would give me like a floor to sleep on. So although I was homeless, I was not a rough sleeper. Okay, you um, didn't sleep Occasionally outside. I was a rough sleeper, but really that was because I was still teaching and okay. being, um, as one chef said when I asked him when I came back from Thailand, from the recovery community, you know, I said, why did you work with me? Because you knew I was completely off my face most of the time. Yeah. He said, because you're a professional. And he said, Don't, you really didn't have to worry that if as soon as I thought maybe something was going wrong, I'd have dropped you like a hot potato. In what capacity were you working with chefs? Were you foraging for them, for the restaurants? So the way that I worked back then, and I, I tend not to work with chefs anymore. Um, right. Uh, that's... Um, a conscious choice but the way i worked back then uh, i was very very selective of the chefs they had to have been doing this before it all became trendy because mm -hmm. a lot of the chefs now are just jumping on it because it's trendy and hip and, and i'm not interested in them um 
the chefs I work with were doing it anyway. You know, okay. they were exploring the wild meats, the local terroir. They were exploring wild plants. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'd turn up and I would take their clients out. And because they were high-end, they were high-end clients mm-hmm. out. And we'd do like three-hour foraging walk and wouldn't gather. It would be more of a, a walk and talk and engagement practice. And then they'd go back for lunch and be served this extraordinary meal by the chef. So that's the way that I work with chefs. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry, I just distracted you there. You, you're, but this evolving relationship with plants, it must have obviously connected you with your childhood experiences and you were taking your dog out and you were bringing plants back to your sitting room and you had no one and you were pretty much homeless. Did you just channel all your energy and attention into the plants? Is that what got you through? Yeah. Humans were just unsafe to be around. Yeah. Um, for numerous reasons, sure, <laughs> yeah. going back to childhood, yeah. never trusted humans, oh, certainly okay. not big bruisers. <laughs> um, so my sanctuary was wild spaces and places. And where did you generally go in, in Devon? Where, just, just locally or? No, I mean, I taught, I've taught, I, by that time I was, I was doing my kind of period of wandering where I was teaching all over the country. So basically when I would teach in a, in a city, someone somewhere, God knows how most of the time, cause I can't remember, yeah. en- I'd end up, you know, they'd give me a bed and I'd stay a night and then I'd move on and, and teach and stay a night. And then some people let me stay for like a couple of weeks. Some people let me stay for a couple of months. Um, and so it, it was following this, this kind of, this route that I discovered because at the time there were, there were actually quite a limited number of foraging teachers uh, certainly visible foraging teachers. So if you Googled foraging courses, most of them weren't on the radar. Right. So I was teaching in Scotland. I taught in Cumbria. I was teaching in York. I was teaching in London and Sussex and Oxford and Devon, obviously. Um, so I would have this kind of what I call the grazing grounds. I would just follow follow this route that I created myself. And, and were and you consumed by it? Were you obsessive or did it become something other in the sense that, because it is, it's your vocation, isn't it? I, well, it feels like you're a sort of a, a devotee, like a seminarian or, you know, and it gets transcended into something that's. Well, it's just, it, it's so wrapped up in, in, in my well-being yeah. and my recovery that, yeah. that I am alive, not because of humans, <laughs> right. but because of nature. Yeah, which is where plants. we come from. Yeah. So. I would I would just wander and and what was fascinating about that is I would I'll give you an example like mm. down on the coast in Devon we have a plant called Alexander's it's not just a coastal plant everyone thinks it is it does actually grow in the middle of London and it grows in York and places like this which are quite a few miles away from coast yeah and you know, so much of my my teaching has come not from books. I mean, it has come from books, you know, the historical uses and those stories, which are really important because we need to remember them. But when it comes to things like flavour and engaging our senses and becoming sensual beings within our ecosystem, which is how we live and survive, if you if you go into a jungle or a forest, which I've done, which is and visit traditional cultures, you know there is there is a way of engaging with those habitats and environments that we we kind of miss being stuck in cities. 
Mm-hmm. And so I I remember the first time I found Alexander's in, in York. Um, and the, down here, the leaves are really strong and powerful to me. In York, they were really subtle and total different quality. And so I pondered this for a lot. And, of course, I started paying attention to the same plant in different parts of the country and the effect on flavor and taste. And what was that telling me? What was the ecosystem telling me about the nature of wild foods? Because monocultured plants, farmed plants, they have to look and taste the same north, south, east, or west of these aisles. We are dumbed down by, and I'm not, this is no kind of dissing the farming practice. It's just how you feed 65 million people. Mm-hmm. we're kind of dumbed down when it comes to flavor. And I found that variation of flavor and texture fascinating because the French have this concept in the wine industry called terroir, that mm-hmm. the soil, the environment that the grapes are growing deeply impacts the flavor of the wine. And you have that with whiskey. Yeah. You know, the, the Japanese tried to model Scottish whiskey. Pretty well. And pretty well, but initially they couldn't they couldn't get it because actually the environment, the air quality, as much as anything else, and the landscape, that is what made that whiskey unique to that place. For sure, for sure. So I took the concept of terroir from the booze industry and started mulling it over in the context of food and now I mean, I've even written an article, Tasting Terroir, which is about when people get into foraging initially, they might try a plant that they've read in a book, but they're coming from their monoculture headspace. And so we have to deprogram ourselves, our our assumptions, our expectations, and we have to deprogram our taste buds by realizing that because you tried dandelion in Devon, Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a dandelion flavor to it when you try it in any other part of the country. But what I'm interested in, and part of my recovery practice, is really getting into the subtle nuances of flavor, which lead into the subtle nuances of place where you find your feet. Right. And that, you know, foraging is metaphor for life for me. It, the closest mm-hmm. thing I have is is Taoism. I've always been obsessed with Taoism mm-hmm. and Zen. Taoism because it's anarchic. Yeah, they're yeah, not really yeah. fond of governments and states. They like nature. <laughs> yeah. It's a different thing unless yeah. you get into Confucius and that's a whole other ball game. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, so being in the wilds and the way that I kept myself sane because I really should have gone a lot more nuts than I did um, was by doing these sensory practices, by bringing myself back into my body when that cortisol flush came and that kind of hyper anxiety came, I refer to it as going to the moon. So all your focus and attention goes up into your head. You are locked in your head and your body is like below somewhere else. And you can see that with people who are very angry and get, get violent is that, you know, seeing red is a phrase that we have. And that is literally they're locked into the tyranny of their cranium. Yeah. And I knew by walking and by becoming present to a plant, regardless of how off my head I was, 
it would for a moment bring me back into my body. And then obviously I went to Thailand, well, not obviously, but I somehow ended up in Thailand and in a Buddhist recovery community. And right. we did, oh God, it was hardcore, man. Yeah. Um, a lot of mindfulness practice, obviously, yeah. because that the tradition and that brought me even more back into my body. And now I have, have blended in my, um, because I teach, so traditional botany is known as the pattern method of plant identification. Which means? Uh, uh, which means if you open up a wild flower book, it's a pattern. It's spotting patterns. How many right, right. leaves does it have? What, or what's, sorry, what's the arrangement of the leaves on the stem? Are they opposite? Are they alternate? How many right. petals? How many stamens? All this kind of stuff that you see with your eye, where I teach plant identification using the sensory method of plant identification. So we are sensory beings. We're not just eyeballs. Mm -hmm. We have touch, we have smell, we have sound. And I encourage people through practices to, to really um, embody all those their, all their senses when they first meet a plant. Because there's a lot of correlation that goes on when you crush and smell a plant or nibble it, providing you know with 100% certainty you can eat it, that your brain will suddenly flash up. You will be inspired, not in any mystical way. I'm very boots on the ground stuff. But if you are quite still when you initially crush a plant, not only does that bring you present to the moment, it brings you present to the plant. And when you crush, often what you'll get is a flash of like, oh, that reminds me of. Do you mean just between your thumb and finger? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I had a, a young woman on one of my gigs a few years ago, mm. and she was from Poland, and we were exploring yarrow. And yeah. I just taught the practice, and she got some yarrow leaf, and she crushed it, and everyone was being all contemplative and still and, <laughs> you know, crushed yeah. smell. And she went, oh, wow, well, I really see that in potato, like crushed potato or mashed potato. And I okay. went, great, go with it. And she's going, is that right? I said, I don't know. If that's right. what your interior response is to the plant, just play with it because I'm very much into encouraging people to trust their internal response to the world. And that's what brings you back to yourself, isn't it? And totally. authenticity. And, and if you, if you, you have to be clean and clear to have those experiences. And if you're not in your body um, and if you're abusing substances and or angry, or in certain mental states, it doesn't happen, does it? It certainly clouds, clouds yeah. the response. And mm. this is a, to me, foraging is a contemplative practice. So a lot yeah. of people, you know, with any of anyone who's taught, then you'll know this, you know, people project onto huge amounts, a load of fantasy that just isn't real. Yeah. So a lot of people project onto me that I'm somehow some kind of shaman or I do shamanic practices. And I'm absolutely not. I'm okay. nothing to do with those traditions. I'll I stop do doing magic. That or shamanism, I do contem contemplative practices okay. in the Western and the Eastern tradition. Do you have, um, is there like a holy trinity of wild plants or weeds? Do you have what a do you mean? plant? What do you mean a holy trinity? Then? Well, I mean like some that always grow together or that support each other or... Yeah, definitely. It's something yeah. to be, be aware of. Um, what grows together often goes together. Yeah. Um, 
What would so, that be? So again, it's about being attentive. So, okay, so wild garlic grows in woodland. Mm-hmm. Well, so does a plant called ground ivy. Mm-hmm. Now, often the wild garlic will have crowded out the ground ivy, but around the edges you'll find bits of ground ivy. So how can you work with that? You see, I, even though I have a recipe site, I'm, I keep going back to this. Be your own authority. So trust your sensory experience. So in chefy culture, in hipster foodie culture, there's this thing called pairing flavors. So if you ask, if a chef will get ingredients, if they have a new ingredient, they will pick it up, they'll crush it in their fingers for the texture, they'll smell it and they'll nibble it. And then they'll go, oh, well, that might go with carrot or whatever. Yeah. 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 So it's about pairing flavors without being all poncy about it. Um, excuse the language. Um, <laughs> and so I, when people come on my courses, I make people work. And I don't just tell you what it will go with. I want you to have your own experience. So if you've got wild garlic and you found ground ivy leaves, well, how are you going to work with it? I know how I'll work with it, but that's not the purpose of, that doesn't serve you, me telling you, spoon feeding you, kind of, um, to how to do things. You know, we live in this culture where everyone is asking and looking outside themselves yeah. for someone to give them the answer. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, I'm just... And some people really don't like that. They get really angry with me because I'm not giving them the answer. And I'm going, look, <laughs> you want that? Go find another teacher, yeah, because I'm not that person. I want you, I want to give you a toolkit at the end of three hours, literally three hours, where you can go away and you can do this on your own. You do not need to come back on one of my gigs. Now, obviously, people do because I teach in different habitats. Yeah. But the toolkit is the same wherever you are, and it's your body, and it's your relationship to your land, local land base, where you find your feet, to the plants around you, and to start this wondrous journey of exploration of human and plant and what our relationship is that is what ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between plants and humans right fantastic we're going to take another quick break we'll be back with you in a little minute you're listening to this food thing with me Gemma richards Hi, welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Robin Harford. I've completely forgotten what we were talking about about six minutes ago because we've just been yarning on in the break. But I do have a question, Robin, that's a bit of a a curveball. If you were a plant, what would you be? Oh, wow. Good question. I've asked other people what they thought their, um, what food looked like, what f- character food was for them. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I can be quite loud, as you've obviously gathered. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> and, and quiet, <laughs> chatty. <laughs> but my, yeah, when I'm on my subject, but I, I say this to people, you know, I like, I like the modest and the quiet people and plants. Okay. Often what I've found in the ecosystem is that, yes, we've got these beautiful showy plants like magnolia or something like that Mm. with the aromas and the ginger tastes and just 
beautiful aesthetics and and that's what we tend to focus on in our culture and you know we like celebrities we like those charismatic people and I actually I do like that don't get me wrong I'm not knocking that but Mm -hmm. I kind of flip it the other way and I often often if I'm in a room with people and and I spot someone who's maybe a little bit more introverted and I tend to kind of want to find out about them because everyone else is focusing on the extroverts. And I like the introverts because they've got stories too and they've got really beautiful stories. I and like that. The that's, with- that's sort of, I've got this image of a, of a plant or petals unfurling in the early morning. Yeah, it, and I, I like, I like the, the modest, the quiet plants because often they Would reveal- a dandelion be a quiet plant? No, dandelion's quite charismatic. You're not going to miss a dandelion. Okay, I was thinking of a dandelion so at night. It's, it's um, yeah, so I seek out the kind of fringe dwellers, the ones that are, are the, the outliers. I mean, I'm an outlier myself in the culture, so I suppose that's why I want to find the other outliers. Um, so ground ivy, I mentioned ground ivy. You yeah. know, it, it's quite a subdued plant. If you walk through a wood, you might suddenly smell it but actually not notice it because it's very modest in its presentation. Mm-hmm. I mean, its flower is very beautiful when it when it opens, but even then a lot of people will miss it. But you walk over it and it just reveals this secret aroma that is just divine. Can you describe it? Oh wow! It's really funny because it's I I always I sh- I always give it to people on a course because every single person has a different response, which then backs up the teaching of bio individualism, biodiversity. That we're not this monoculture. There is no one flavor or taste. Everyone's unique, even though we all live within this collective called human, and what is it it's pungent Mm. spicy sweet um i love it some people can't stand it can you what can you do with ground ivy can you can you eat it it's got such a story Ah. its story goes back to the middle ages when men and women wore bright colors and had rings on their fingers and bells on their toes and you know the time was the the church bell at noon and the church bell at 6 p.m. and I mm-hmm. think and we had 200 festival and feast days in the year and we were known as Merry England M-E-R-R-I-E and we were celebratory culture we enjoyed partying mm-hmm. and along with that partying and along with those celebrations you know the on the feast days and festival days, the, the grand halls would open up and, and the villagers would be out. And we, you know, flower salads, colourful, bright, flamboyant, right. would be part of our food culture. And then the Puritans turn up and, and they stop us wearing colour and they ban, virtually ban Christmas and there's no celebration and we're made to feel bad about our bodies and bad, shameful about what we think and behave like, you know. And and, and they brought hops into our drinking culture. So before hops, we had these what were called grutales, which were kind of weak, well, kind of weakish ale, or certainly on an alcohol basis. There were a few that were a bit psychotropic. Mm. Um, 
And so ground ivy was used to, its other common name is alehoof. So it was used to add a kind of bitterness to the hedgerow ales that were being brewed at the time that didn't involve hops. Ah. Then the Puritans came, brought hops. Now, it's quite interesting how from a kind of social or political perspective, you know, the people were being enclosed or the beginning of the enclosures were starting. We were moving more and more into the cities and more and more into those god-awful jobs that we had to do. And and so hops was quite good. It was anti-sex, so you didn't get all raunchy. Um, <laughs> it was soporific, you know, so you right. were kind of subdued. It's a real slave drug. Dumbing down the masses. Yeah, if you want to get, if you want to keep people slaves, feed them a load of ale and beer. Yeah. Hops, you know, which is kind of, I know the brewers out there are going to go, what yeah. the fuck? What are you talking about? But actually, if you look at it, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so anti-sex, soporific. And you could have a skinful and a jolly on in the night and you could still turn up for work the next day. Well, right. that didn't happen with certain Groot ales. Let's be clear. You know, you might not turn up for a week. <laughs> You'd be off wandering, <laughs> tripping the light fantastic, so to speak. Um, so we went from this colourful, bright, albeit Catholic um, yeah. culture to this protestant puritan culture and and ground ivy followed us into the cities and at the time black indian tea was coming in and the aristocracy and the affluent would buy the black tea because it was really expensive they'd get their servants would make it servants would strain out the old tea grains and they'd take them back to the tea merchant and he'd dry them out and he'd then sell secondhand tea for the middle classes who were or equivalent of the middle classes who were aspiring to be like the aristocracy. And hey, same as it ever was. We still have that now. Yeah. You know, everyone wants to be a celebrity. Everyone wants to rise and be like the aristocrats. Yeah. And so he'd sell secondhand tea to the middle classes and then the, the, they would bring back the grains and he'd dry them out and then he'd have the equivalent of wood tea. So he knew that he... um was kind of pushing it if he was just going to sell wood tea to the to the poor, to the working class. They most probably burned down his tea shop. So what they did, the tea merchants, is they dried ground ivy leaves and mixed it in with the wood tea, and that became known as gill tea or gilly ah. tea. And it was a refreshing drink, and ground ivy is a very refreshing drink. So what you have with this plant, this is why I love the his- history of wild plants, is they tell us stories of where we've been and and maybe how we've become more more domesticated and controlled by culture over time. Um, Colourful Middle Ages, black, depressed, shameful, and Mm -hmm. then we're into the hipster culture with food. And I was at a Dorset Food Festival yonks ago Mm. and there was a chef there, and this is before it really kind of taken off in chefy culture, and he was bigging up ground ivy. And I said to him, I said, how do you use it? And he went, steak and ale pie. So there's this kind of association with drinking, our drinking culture, and both alcohol, middle mm-hmm. ages, to tea, non-alcohol, uh, when when that came in. When was that? 1700s, 1600s, something like that. Yeah. Probably good with my times without looking them up. And then we move into hipster culture where it's being, it, rather than using it necessarily in drink, it's been used in association to so beef and ale pie, steak and ale pie. And it is, it's a beautiful plant to include in kind of like a wild bouquet garni. 
Okay. So that's your that's your chosen plant, clearly. I love ground ivy. Ground it's part ivy. of the mint family. And the beauty with the mint family is they're they're all pretty much safe and edible. Now, we do have to get clear, there's a there's bugle and there's pennyroyal within the mint family, which if you eat in large quantities, um isn't gonna poison you or kill you. But it, it pennyroyal's an abortifactant. So, you know, if you're pregnant and you eat a load of uh, penny roll you might have you might miscarriage right. so this leads into well how do we use wild plants because yes it's back to front to the dominant culture should we be cultivating them on mass or does that then become <laughs> the problem? no please we do <laughs> there are certain businesses out there that do and that's a contentious issue to me it's like no we don't we don't we leave them in the wild we leave them in the wild and we don't see them as a commercial resource to be used and sold in supermarkets. How but, do we see know, them then? Do we see them as our somewhere that we go for solace and support and for healing? Yeah, most yeah. definitely. And it to me, in the early days, it was about eating a hundred or trying to be as wild food focused as as much as possible. But okay, let me let me kind of finish off on two points that are important to make we go into a supermarket with our monoculture head going i need a kilo of this and a pound of that and we go in and look at food in that that way when we go into the wild you can't go well you can to a point go in with i want a kilo of this and a pound of that but that's really disrespectful Mm -hmm. from where i sit Mm -hmm. and we go into the land and we relate to the land very gratefully because it is the provider of our sustenance. And with wild, you might only get a small little handful. So in Western Europe, it's estimated that most people will eat between 20 and 25 species of plants throughout the year. And I know your macrobiotics and your vegans go, well, I eat a lot more than that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but on the whole, right, be a generalist for a moment. Yeah. Um, most the average average out 20 25 species of plants. Well, on my hard drive, I have a spreadsheet of plants that I have gone through and found have been eaten in human culture at some point in history, not only in Britain, but also abroad, that may not be in the historical record. This is why I'm a I'm an ethnobotanical researcher. I go transglobal, I look mm-hmm. at other cultures. So we have a plant in Britain, but in the f- historical food record, which is a whole other reason who writes history, why is it in there or not in there, but in another culture it's used. So on my spreadsheet, there's over 700 wild edible plants of Britain wow. that are edible. Wow. Compare that to 20 to 25. Extraordinary. So we can't treat it the same. And if you look at traditional cultures, and I don't just mean kind of, you know, people living in the jungles and the forests. Mm-hmm. I mean land-centric cultures so you go to spain they have tapas little dishes you go into the middle east where there's a huge wild food tradition still there's little dishes called meza you go into india you have talis southern india little dishes mm-hmm. you go into burma or you go into laos and you get a main protein a main carbon you get lots of little dishes that tells me something that tells me that more land-centric cultures serve their food in smaller portions but with a wider diversity so supermarket grazing is a lot of a little 
wild culture grazing is a little of a lot. We gather yeah. a little of a large diversity of plants. And also then you're, nutritionally speaking, obviously it's superior. Um, and for the body, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for the body, the body's satisfied and satiated yeah. because, of its, because it's superior. Because it provides everything that, that you need in a small amount. The nutrient amount. density of wild plants is, in certain plants, is, is eclipses anything you're going to find yeah. and grow, yeah. or whether or not it's organic or not. You know, nettle's got um, three, tw- three times more iron than spinach, seven times more vitamin C than oranges. Its calcium content is nearly as good as cheese, and its protein content is just... Some people say it's nearly as good as soya beans. You see, so why aren't we all eating nettles? I know, I know the answer, kind of, because because that's not what's sold and produced. But it's crazy, isn't it? We have all this around us. We do, and you know, my approach to, to eating a wild food diet now, and and this is the second point. So the first point was you don't gather loads of it. Yeah, you get mm. a small amount and you certainly don't take it all because, you know, we are one animal within an ecosystem of loads of other animals and critters that need that plant. It's not, you know, God did not put it on. The, I know it says in Genesis that God gave us the earth and every herb bearing seed. It, well, I'm not a Christian. I trained to be a priest in my 20s. Did I'm you? not a Christian now anymore. And I failed <laughs> miserably. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but you're, as I said at the beginning, you're a devotee. So I think it, it's writ large in a way. Yeah. And oh, what was the Your point? second point, your second oh, point second about point. not taking very much yeah. and I making sure that. that you are, uh, what you take doesn't affect yeah that's it it's about feeding it's about feeding yeah and the word food and feeding and eating for me the whole practice of walking out whether i'm in the middle of a city or whether i'm in the middle of the countryside the practice daily practice of walking out of being attentive to my environment of experiencing the elements through my sensory body I am fed before I've even found a wild edible plant. When I then find plants, now I gather just for today. I do not hoard. I'm absolutely, it's, that's the farming mentality of a static domesticated species. When we were wild and feral and a little bit more free, we were nomadic. We wandered. That's our genetic makeup. Up until 12,000 years ago, humans are estimated to be 300,000 years old. So it's only the last 12,000 years that we've become this other, uh, the human species is behaving in this other way where we have dissociated from the ecosystem. We have lawns for a reason. You know, it keeps the wild at bay. We want neatness. We want Nuremberg, the equivalent of Nuremberg Nazi rallies or Roman centurion blocks. You know, we're martial. We have this, oh, the invader, those invasive species, those immigrant plants. We are nihilistic in how we treat the land. 
And we are paying the price right yeah, now, for today, sure. by screwing it up, by committing ecocide. And we have to, however we do that, get some form of restoring vital connection to where we find our feet. And the first step for me, the most powerful, is to pause, breathe, pay attention, pick, crush, smell, and nibble if you can eat that plant. And that practice, however simple, you can't charge thousands for it, so most people won't bother with it. That is why I am alive today, period. If I was going to put you on a desert island, which I'm going to do, and give you five plants, normally I say to people, what five foods would you take with you to a desert island? I'm going to give you five plants so that you can nibble and crush and pause. Which five plants would you take? Oh, well, I'm go- I wouldn't take any. I'd have to find out what's there. Okay. What would I you can't find? take a resource from Britain and take it to a desert island. So okay, I'm going to put you on an I, island in Scotland. Yeah, let's. Yeah, it's a bit cold. Isle of Wight or something. All right, let's go for the Isle of Wight. With yeah. and it's summer. It's you have sun. Oh, it would be sea aster down on the mudflats and the estuaries. What's sea aster for? Sea aster is one of the most extraordinary coastal wild greens. Okay. What it's, next? Okay, sea aster. Uh, coastal, um, if you imagine Great Britain mm-hmm. back in the day when it was full of forests, it's surmised that we actually lived on the coast. So inland would have been thick forest, like a okay. jungle. Okay. You really get in there. So coastal is me. So seaweed, yeah. kind of algae plant. Yeah. Um, at this time of year, because obviously the seasons change. Um, you can have any Cow parsley. But you've got to be really careful with cow parsley because it's almost identical to the untrained eye to hemlock, which will kill you. Yeah. Um, so we've got sea aster, we've got cow parsley, we've got seaweeds. Too much. Um, we've got another, uh, well, ground ivy. Ground ivy. will be around. Uh-huh. And at this time of year, I mean. You can have whatever you want. It's any time it's of year. Well, garlic, isn't it? Round oh, ones. Fantastic. Fantastic. Because it's actually got the medicine side. Um, I was looking at some research papers. Um, it's 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 chipping chipping your commercially grown garlic, so you need to be getting that in your bones today. Okay, okay. Robin, thank you so much. Uh, for anyone who's listening, you can find all of Robin's information on his website. All the details will be on our at this Food Thing podcast Instagram page. Thank you so much for talking with me today it's been it's been fantastic i've had a great time thank you pleasure Gemma. thanks for having me thanks for listening i'd love to know your favorite bit from this episode let me know on instagram at this food thing podcast or join us again in the next episode